The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, one commentator succinctly summarizes what these verses in Genesis 6 and actually what the next two chapters are about when he writes this. It's important. I wanted to get nice succinct. The central themes introduced in these opening verses are God's judgment of man's wickedness and his gracious salvation of the righteous. That's what these chapters are all about. We can get lost in the fact that there are giraffes and hippos and, and, and the water, you know, and we miss. That's what this is about. It's about God's awful judgment on sin and God's incredible salvation by grace to save a remnant. But we shouldn't take this fallible uh, commentator's word for it that I just quoted. That's actually how the apostle Peter presents it to us in his second epistle. That's why we read it earlier in our prep for worship. In referring to this cladichismic event of the flood, this is what, what Peter wrote about it, that God knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. 
That's Peter. And, and listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say, I believe in his word, I believe in him, then you have to believe Peter's word as it's inscripturated and Paul's word as it's inscripturated because they are his hand-picked representatives who saw him risen from the dead. And they were the ones to whom Jesus said, I, the Holy Spirit will remind you all the things I taught you about so they could pass it on to us. That's the apostolic message. Now, as I preach, uh, as I prepare for these messages, um, both Pete and I, we spend a lot of time looking at other commentators. You know, we do exegesis of the text. We study the text. We look at other commentators, so we're not all by ourselves reinventing the, the, the wheel. And I myself like to listen to sermons from good pastors who are faithful in the word to kind of let it percolate in my heart and mind all week so it's just it's waiting to bust out. <laughs> Well, I listened to one commentator, one of the commentators, or one of the sermons I heard, and he said something interesting. Like, what I'll do is I'll yell back. My wife must, like, he's crazy. She'll hear me upstairs, like, yell back, no, it's not. That ain't true. You know, like I said. So this one commentator, <laughs> what he was saying was, he was saying that we far too, now this I agree with him in part. He says, far too often when we read, especially Old Testament stories, we're always the hero in the story. Do you ever notice that? We're pretty selfish. So if it's David and Goliath, who do we see ourselves in the text? Well, I'm David, right? I'm the one knocking out Goliath. God's helping me to be the deliverer. Where in reality, in David and Goliath, guess who you are? Goliath. No, you're not Goliath. Well, hope, hopefully you're not Goliath. You may be. I don't hope not. But what, who you are is you're the Israelites, if you believe in Jesus, who are being delivered by David. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because David is a, is a type of who? Jesus. So in that passage, David and Goliath, David represents the deliverer. He represents the man of faith. He represents Messiah. And that later, of course, Jesus is who? The son of David. You kind of getting it? Now, where the guy goes wrong, or our brother goes wrong in this case, he otherwise is a pretty good sermon. He goes wrong in that he says that we don't relate. We're not Noah in this passage. We're, we're the world who's being destroyed by the flood. Now, you know, he, here's the problem, okay? That depends on who you are. Now, if you're an unrepentant, unbelieving sinner who rejects the promised Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, and you reject his word, and after repeatedly hearing it again and again, turn from the wrath to come, you basically flout God and his authority, and you continue to live in sin anyway, and you, you continue to live against everything that God says, then yes, you relate to the people who are going to be destroyed. However, if you are a sinner saved by grace, if the Holy Spirit has shown you your sin, you have acknowledged it, and through his power, you have repented of it, you've turned from it to the only hope we have, and that's the mercy seat. You've turned to another ark made of wood, but it's called the cross, and you have all your hope, not in what you could do to save yourself, but in everything Jesus did to save you, then guess what? Noah is an example of you. He is the quintessential believer. That's how Hebrews talks about him. We'll get to that. I can't miss Hebrews 11.7, which talks about the faith of Noah. All right, we'll get there. It's interesting how the author of Genesis presents Noah to us in chapter 6 to 9. Um, first of all, he says, 
But Noah found what? Favor. You know what favor is, right? Look, we use it all the time. Grace. But favor, this is unearned favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then he's further described in verse 9 this way. He was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. One who walked with God. You know, we always sing, walk with me, Lord. Well, don't forget, we got to walk with the Lord on our side of it. Ronald Youngblood puts it really succinctly when he says this, The story of Noah's salvation from the flood is used in the Bible to typify God's deliverance of all who trust in him. Can I get a witness? Amen. I mean, this is really, really important for us to get this perspective so as the word is being preached, we understand where we fit in the story. We've got to understand what it meant to the original hearers first so that we can then understand what it means to us today. All right. So really, this is where it starts to get pointed. And this is where we really have to get it crystal clear in our minds. If we're among the godly whom God promises to, live, to deliver from his judgment, which is to come. Or if we're among the unrighteous whom God is holding to the day of judgment. Who are you? Because listen, here's the thing. And this is how the New Testament uses this story. God promised, praise his name, he'll never destroy the world through a flood again. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But guess what? There's another cataclysmic event coming. And this time, there's no coming back from it. It's not water, Peter tells us, it's fire. And then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's not creation 2.0 as we're going to see in Noah's account. It's a brand new thing. Making sure that you're on the right side of that is more important than securing that job you hope you get. Am I meddling yet? It's more important than avoiding that earthly sorrow or disappointment that you dread. Now I'm really going to step in it. It's even more important than knowing where your next meal is coming from. Jesus said that in John 6, in case you think I'm making that one up. He says, you're coming to me to get because you got your belly filled. He says, don't work for food that perishes, but come for the eternal life I'll give you. Amen. Tillotson once said this, one of my top ten quotes of all times outside of the Bible, but it's very biblical. He says this, listen, this is what the message of Noah will help us to see. He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity, is wise for a moment, but a fool for eternity. The good news is Genesis 6 and 7, and then later on we'll get to uh, 8 and 9, will help us answer the question, who are we in the story? And by the way, i got to say one more thing, and then we're going to get right into it, and that's this. Noah's not the hero of the story. Hello. God is the hero of the story. He's the hero. The one who saves by his grace. Who saved Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. It's all about grace and grace alone. And it's way back in Genesis. You don't have to go to Ephesians 2. It's way back here. All right, so this is what we're going to see this morning. 
In the saving of Noah and his family, God displays his amazing grace in the midst of sin and judgment. Three things we're going to see. I'm going to keep it simple. First, we're going to see God's amazing grace. Then we're going to see Noah's faith. And then we're going to see the wicked's fate. I had to rhyme a little bit. <laughs> amazing grace, Noah's faith, the wicked's fate. Let's take a look at the first one. God's amazing grace. Now, this true story of how God destroyed the world through a devastating universal flood is not primarily a story about a flood or about a huge ark filled with tons of animals, as interesting as that is. According to Moses, the author of Genesis, in 6.9, notice how it starts? This is the account, not of the flood, but of what? Of Noah. It's very personal. This is Noah's story. This is the one who comes from the line of Seth. Hello, if you've been with me. This is a story that continues the story of ultimately who? The Messiah. We're going to get there, but let me just tell you that. Now, in a depraved, wicked world, a world of violence, God said it was, a world that corrupted themselves, where, uh, a world that was headed for God's judgment, we find this in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we read this in verses 9 and 14. I want to get this to you. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all, the, all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both of them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark. You remember something else that God said? That God said, surely, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That was a warning, wasn't it? And now once again, God is warning Noah, surely I will put an end. There's no and, if, or but. It's going to happen. But what's really important here, and I almost missed it um, as a point to pull out from the text, and this is why I can't rush, because it was so profound to me. I found something new. It's so neat when you've been walking with Jesus for like 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden something brand new that you've read the story a million times kind of just goes, and you go, whoa. And here it is. Noah found favor, that is, he found grace, right, in the eyes of the Lord, comes before, this is powerful to me, it comes before any mention of the fact that he was a righteous man. It comes before any, any fact um, about him walking with God. And more importantly, it comes before the flood and all his preparations in obedience to build the ark. In other words, listen, don't miss this. Grace comes before faith. Sorry. It's the divine order of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Because God gets the glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. Listen, what does it say in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10? These verses, it's all about Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Grace, we're saved by what? Grace through faith. This not of who? Not of yourselves. Not by what? Works. So no one can do what? Brag. It's a gift of God. For we were created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. And that's the exact order we see here. Noah found grace. Noah walked with God by faith. 
And then what? Noah built an ark. A work, and here's really cool, a work that God definitely prepared ahead of time for Noah to walk in. You with me? Excuse me. But here's the thing. Otherwise, Noah would be able to brag. But you know what the interesting thing is? There's no bragging with Noah here. There's, no, there's humble trusting. There's no bragging because he knows he's reliant upon God. So what we're seeing in this text is that the Lord saves and the Lord alone praises his name. And we don't only see this at the beginning of the story like I just mentioned, before the waters come, before the ark is built, but we also see it in the closing in of Noah and his family when the waters begin to come. This is a passage, for, for me, when, when you read the text, just read it by itself. It busts me up inside when I read this in 7.16 in the passage. Once Noah and his family and all the animals were safely tucked in the ark, we read these wonderful words. Then the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door. Now look, the, the God didn't only close the door to the rest of the fallen, violent, rebellious mankind, but at the same time, he protected Righteous Noah, who believed in him and his family from the judgment to come. The wrath that was about to fall. Notice how many times in the text God emphasizes I, all who breathe, everything that breathes, I will put an end. Notice in chapter 7 and 6, he repeats that. He wants us to see this. David Atkinson puts it this way. The water which is the means of judgment for the world is at the same time the means of salvation for God's family. In this one action, there is judgment and there is mercy. Huh. Where else has that happened? Where we saw judgment and we saw mercy in the same place. Again, i got to go back to a wooden object, or actually the one who hung on the wooden object, where judgment came down, and yet mercy is found. Oh, I didn't have that one written. That rhyme too. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. When we see God the hero, one of the things that struck me really hard was as grieved as God was, right? Because it says he was grieved. As filled with pain that his heart was, as regretful that he was, that he created man in the first place. Man, he had to be pretty grieved to regret that he even made man. But notice what he couldn't do. He would never... And he could never go back on the promise he made in Genesis 3.15 that he would bring a deliverer, a son of a woman, who would destroy the devil's works and save a people for himself. Because listen, God can do anything but fail. He cannot fail to keep his promise. Because there's one, you know, you think about, you know, God could do anything. No, he can't. It's impossible for God to lie. He can't. It's not that he won't do it. It's not in his nature. He can't do it. So when he said a son is coming, guess what? Heaven and hell are going to be moved to make sure that son comes. And so Noah and your family, get in the ark. The, proud, the promised child has to come from Seth's line. Does anybody have a tissue? Oh, I got one. I got one. Forget it. I found one. There's one hiding. So this is a story of the covenant faithfulness of our God. And why do I say covenant? Because this is the first place in the whole Bible the word covenant's used. Did you know that? It shows up here in the story of Noah. And he goes, I will make a covenant with you. And that is an agreement. It is a promise. It is a contract. And God's going to make it and he's going to keep it. And we'll talk more about that in the next message.
So that's the divine side of things, but of course we also have the human side of things. And it's really striking and shocking at the same time when you think about it. Noah stands alone in his faith in God and his promise and warnings in his day. And the, 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 again, the text makes it clear, only Noah, only Noah, only Noah. Imagine how lonely. And imagine the kind of faith. You know, we talk about being a small group in a bigger group, but he was literally by himself with his family only. And so the next thing I want to show is that Noah's faith. We've got to take a look at Noah's faith. It's another detail we, we dare not miss is that Noah was declared a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God before he demonstrated his faith clearly by heeding God's warning to build a huge sea vessel in the middle of a dry desert. Hebrews will pick that up in a minute. So one more quote from a commentary I think I got in this loophole. He's a conservative Lutheran commentary. He was really good, an older guy, but man, it was good. He says this, primarily God desired man to believe him and his promise to help through the seed of the woman. This basic requirement Noah met, and his conduct showed it. Because of such faith, Noah is justified. Amen. Now listen, what is saving faith? Saving faith is taking God at his word. And it simply means this, believing his promises, even when you can't see them with the physical eye, and everything else screams, no way. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. That's faith. I don't have to see it. It's more certain than if I could touch it. Because God said it. And God keeps his word. But there's another aspect of faith. It also believes God's warnings. When, when God says the day you eat of it, you will die, he, we believe it. When God says if you are found outside of Christ on that terrible day, you will not be with him in paradise. And when God says the people out there need Jesus because without him there is no other way, Amen. and warning, he's coming to judge the earth, we believe it. That's saving faith. So in other words, what was Noah? Noah was a sinner saved by grace. And if you don't believe that, take a look at what happens after the flood. Remember what Noah does? He gets drunk. Because guess what Noah needs? A savior. And guess what we need? A savior. Now, of course, you may relate more to the sinful world that was destroyed in the flood if you don't believe in Jesus and his word, and if you're living a life of sin and unbelief, but if you've turned from that, then the awesome thing here is we have this great encouragement that we are God's people, even though we live in a world that is filled with violence and wickedness and sin. Because I got news for you, in case you haven't noticed, that's the world we live in. Look at Hebrews, 7, Hebrews 11, 7. This is what it says about Noah's faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, remember what I said about that? In holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. Notice in the text, this is the, the exact warning that 
the writer of Hebrews is referring to is when God said this, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. Now, we've got to stop a moment and we've got to understand this. Do you realize how incredibly insane that would have looked? No, I don't think you get it. You're in a dry desert. Now, for hundreds of miles, is there any, any, any water at all? And all the neighbors would be like, uh, dude, what are you doing? And Noah would be like, I'm building a, building a big boat. <laughs> Seriously. Why are you building a big boat? And Noah would have said, because God told me he's going he's gonna to flood the world. Now, here's what you have to understand. This is why, in one sense, I'm not an evidentialist. Noah had no evidence. If the, if the world said, prove to me there's going to be a flood. There was no empirical evidence. You know what the evidence was? God's word. You either believe that or you don't. Now, you've got to understand, his neighbors probably would have scorned him. They would have laughed at him. They would have, How do I know that? Because what do people do to us today? When we say Jesus is the only way, do people go, oh, praise God, come and tell us more? Or like when you're at work. You with me? Or at school. No, Noah was called later, and Peter calls him a what? A preacher of righteousness. In other words, he warned the people his day. He didn't keep it to himself. There was no guilty silence with Noah. Noah knew it was coming, and he did not want his neighbors to share in it. He carried out these seemingly in crazy instructions. Now I say this and I point this out from the text because for me, and I hope it is for you too, what a great encouragement it is for me to continue to follow Jesus by faith, the help of his grace, obeying his word in the face of a world that hates God and hates his word and mocks me and mocks it and mocks him. Because I know that people think of me and my faith as outdated, as archaic. I'm a dinosaur. And not only that, some people think the message of the gospel is stopping progress. That's the world we live in. You know that, right? We live in a world that will punish those who don't. They, they talk about tolerance, but they'll punish you if you don't agree with them. Can I get an amen? amen. But you know, here's... The awesome thing about Noah, and I want you to see this, verse chapter 6, 22, and then in verse 7, 5. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. 7, 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So that means Noah's faith wasn't some mystical thing that couldn't be shown in his life, or, or you just had to take his word for it. You know? Notice Noah's faith was demonstrated by what? His works. Ulrich Zwingli. I just like saying Ulrich. <laughs> Ulrich Zwingli was a, a Swiss reformer from Switzerland. And he once wrote this. Our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, negligent, or careless. But on the contrary, it awakens us. It urges us on. It makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. There is no self-confidence that compares to this. 
you know what? Noah had to put up with the world's shaming of him for doing such a strange thing. And I think there's something else that if we don't slow down, we, we don't realize. For 120 years, he would have had to put up, put up with the shame that his family had to go through. His wife and his kids and his kids. You know, it's one of those things, you could hurt me, I could take it. But when you start messing with my family. And yet Noah trusted God so deeply that he must have certainly encouraged his family. Don't look to the world. Don't listen to their threats. Or don't be wooed by their temptations. Keep your eyes on the prize. The water's coming. And before we know it, that day is going to be here. Listen, we too have had the gospel preached to us. And what's the message today? It's the same as it was in Noah's day. Flee from the wrath to come. And how do you do that? You repent and you believe the good news. You want to know what the good news was? The good news is Jesus died to take your, pain, to your punishment. So you won't have to be swept away on the day of judgment. That's the good news. You know, all I could think about when I thought of this, and, and I, I want to say this, how many of us have read that, that book, The Shack? Or how many of us have read some of these other top sellers that are nothing but pure heresy? And then I'll ask people, how many people have read The Pilgrim's Progress? Hardly any hands. I'm glad you did. That's great. That's an awesome book, which is a real classic, which is real biblical theology. And I'll tell you, one of the coolest uh, things from it that, that made me think of that, that book is when Pilgrim, who becomes Christian, is leaving the city of destruction. In this case, even his family, his townspeople were saying, come back, don't leave the city of destruction. You remember what he did? He stuck his fingers in his ears and he ran screaming, life, life, eternal life. He did not look back. We trust in the Lord. We put our faith in Him. We do everything the Lord commands us in His Word by His grace, no matter how crazy our culture views it. And then this is what Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, how it puts it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not what? On your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Let me put it as simply as we know, and then we'll get to our third and last point. Faith is believing what we cannot see with our earthly eyes. It's trusting so much in God and His promise and in His warning that even though what He says might seem totally incredible, we align our hearts and our dreams and our actions with it, with its certainty and with its reality. We say, God, Lord Jesus, make my life conform more and more and more to your holy word, no matter what the world says. Augustine puts it this way, faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. Amen. And I'll tell you what, when Noah put his feet on that safe ark, he saw what he believed for 120 years, and everybody said he was nuts. Everybody, you're crazy, you're nuts, ha ha. And then all of a sudden, what? They started getting wet. Oops. Oops. Last thing I want to show you we saw God's amazing grace. We saw the man of faith. 
Last of all, we're going to see the wicked's faith. 7, 21 and 23, to 23. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth. And all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died, in case you didn't get it. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And that, in, Before I had to say emphasis mine because I put bold on one of the sentences. This one, emphasis God's. It's absolutely devastating. It's absolutely tragic. And now, this was the sweet spot for me in my faith and encouraging me and convicting me. Many people will ask us, and if they haven't already, then start evangelizing because you'll get this question. How could a loving God send such devastation? How could he punish so severely? But as sinners saved by God's amazing grace, we know that Sir Thomas Brown hits the nail on the head when he says this. Listen, this is powerful. The fact that there was once a flood doesn't seem to me as great a miracle as that there isn't always one. Isn't that powerful? In other words, I'm not shocked that there was a flood. That's what happens when again and again and again you flout God and his authority, you sin against him, you're violent. That's, you know, you would think, you know, God said, the soul that sins shall die. The real miracle is that we don't have floods every day. Because sin destroys, sin ruins, sin separates so that we need reconciliation. Amen? Sin kills. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Judgment is coming. Flee from the wrath to come. But they didn't listen. They continued headlong in their sins. And listen, this is the interesting thing. Jesus talked about this very time in history. In case you didn't know that. When he was teaching us about his second coming to judge the world and to save those who believed in him, this is what he says, Matthew 24, 37. And following, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up till the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. See, judgment is hard to swallow. It's, it's not fun to meditate on. And, and people won't put up with us bringing attention to it. You know, even as believers, sometimes we fall into the sin. Listen to me. We fall into the sin of being ashamed of the idea of judgment. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis on this topic in his broadcast talks. Listen, this is powerful. I want you to focus on this. He says, and it's no good either saying, in saying that if there is a God, then you don't like him and you aren't going to bother about him. For the trouble is part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. 
You may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time. But you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, then he can't be good. In other words, we all know in our hearts God has to judge sin if he's going to be good. Even those who steal don't like it when people steal from them. Starting to follow me? Even those who commit adultery touch their wife and all of a sudden they're a little upset because they know in their heart that's wrong. And we know it's right for God who has had patience on a sinful world for so long finally says, enough! You know, it's one thing when a sinful human being like me says, I'm done. I ain't doing it. But when God says I'm done, and here's the thing, he did it already in history once. And what Jesus is saying, be ready, because he's going to do it again. And that time the jig is up. So it was amazing to me, no matter how long I've been studying the word, how much I think I know a certain passage of scripture, the spirit will highlight something that I've never seen before. And here's another big aha for me. Look at 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 11, 7, where it talks about Noah's faith. Something I've never seen highlighted before. And as I was reading it, it just, again, slapped me on the other side of the face. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Normally I focus on became heir of the righteousness that came by faith. But notice what it says. He condemned the world. Now wait a minute. I thought God condemned the world. Well, God did condemn the world. But notice, so did Noah. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means. When Noah entered the ark and God shut him in, he was agreeing with God that God is just and he is right and he is good when he punishes sin and sinners. Far from being embarrassed by God's judgment, Noah agreed with it. Didn't mean, like God, he didn't have deep pain and deep anguish and deep, deep sorrow, but he said, it is right, Lord, for you do all things right. And you are just. And you are good. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Good examples either convert sinners or condemn them. Isn't that powerful? And I want you to see this as we come to a close. Noah's, the people of Noah's generation weren't simply judged because they were sinners. Noah was a sinner. So was his family. And we'll see one of his sons ended up really walking away from God. No, they were condemned because they refused to repent and believe. There's a difference. What about you today? Will you listen to Jesus who referred to this great event and likened it to the pattern of his return. Notice, he goes on to say this, Jesus, in the passage I quoted from, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving up marriage, up till the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how, that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, 
because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Bottom line, keep believing. Keep obeying. Keep looking crazy to the world. But looking like a son of his father to God, to Jesus. To one of his brothers, one of his sisters, one of his own. It's interesting with a lot of this uh, left behind movies, you know, and that theology of dispensationalism, forgive me. But you always have this left behind thing. And we see, we always think that the righteous go up. And who's left behind? The sinners. That's not what this says. What happened in Noah's day? Who was taken away? The evil. The wicked. Who was left? Noah. When Jesus comes, and there will be two, he says, in the field. One will be taken in judgment. The one left standing is the one who has faith in Jesus. And proved it by striving to live a godly and holy life. So, an old hymn says it this way, and then we'll pray. But I, I bless my heart, you got to hear it. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's members know. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, don't forget that. The day is coming, and it's really going to happen, just like the flood really happened, where you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, that you gave me grace to believe you and align my life with your word, which as sure as the flood happened, is going to happen again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God and a God who will not only, always abide with sin and violence and evil perpetrated against you and others. You will judge it for those who refuse to repent. But we thank you, Father, that you are a God who knows how to save and save to the uttermost those who put their faith in Jesus. Oh, Lord, be with us to the end that we, like Noah, would be preachers of righteousness, that we would not shrink back from telling our neighbors in love as you give opportunity, flee from the wrath to come. And, Lord, that we would be those who demonstrate our faith by doing what you say, just as you've told us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.